0: Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, we're going to collaborate with the Dr. Joe Show, of which I'm a co-host, this was an amazing episode and I really wanted to share it with you in case you hadn't already heard it. Please enjoy.
1: So I have the honor I will do the first introduction if that's okay. Thank you. you, you. Thank you. I would like to introduce Dr. Andreas Martin, <laughs> professor of pediatric psychosocial services at Yale. So this is a chaired position. This is like, you know, the the highest of the highest rung you can get in, in any academia chaired position. But he is a um, child psychiatrist, adult psychiatrist, but more importantly, just to be perfectly honest, Andreas and I were child psychiatry fellows together a long time ago at MGH McLean, and I really consider him to be a brother. So I am so delighted. But it's the mission that you have and the way that you have really influenced our whole view of of mental health and psychiatry. And it's so, so important. And I am so delighted to have you here. And I'm going to ask you if you would introduce our other guest.
2: I'm very happy to do so, my uh, brother Joe. Uh, can I call you Joe or do I need to call you brother Dr. Joe? Uh,
1: brother Dr. Joe, Joe, DJ, BGJ, whatever you prefer is fine with me. I've been well, many things.
2: That's me. right. Anyway, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here Some uh, several decades after we finished our training and seeing you have this wonderful show. So it's great. Um, I'm delighted to introduce my friend, colleague, and co-partner in the particular crime we will talk about today. And that is uh, the great Dr. Shashank Joshi. Shashank is a professor of psychiatry and child psychiatry at Stanford uh, out West somewhere. I don't know, you know, anything that's West of Pittsburgh, I don't, uh, I don't know, somewhere West out there. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Shoshank is very involved in training. He is a training director in child psychiatry at Stanford, and he has more roles and titles than we have time to go into. So we won't do that, uh, but he's a good friend and um, full disclosure. This product we're going to be talking about, this book that we're so proud of, is really his brainchild. Um, When he called me and said, let's do this book, I said, that's stupid. (laughs) And that was the beginning of this beautiful book. So, hello, Shashank. Hello.
3: It's great to be with you all. And um, Andres is very generous, but actually, he didn't say it's stupid. He actually said, wow, Um, let me think about it. and And then he called me back that afternoon and said, I would love to do it. I'm not sure I can right now, Um, but let's think together about what this is going to be, what the timeline is, and um, tell me more about how this is going to play out. And this book would not have happened without my brother Andres, because he had the vision, he had the ideas to bring it to life. He also had a lot of very practical experience as an editor, having been uh, the editor of our journal in child psychiatry, the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, aka the Orange Journal. And he took it to, I mean, where it was already very prestigious and under his leadership, it became the most frequently cited pediatric journal in the world across all pediatric specialties, taking it to the number one rating in terms of impact factor and um so i just knew i had to have andres as my co-pilot or this wasn't going to happen so um i have so much gratitude for his guidance and his humor and his encouragement and um dr joe i feel like i already know you because i i read about your model and i i'm just so delighted to be on the show with you to um think about what we were trying to write as it relates to the way you are um, in the world with regard to mental health promotion, but also what we do as child psychiatrists. So thank you for having me and Andres.
1: Thank you so much for being here. And I, and I appreciate um, I appreciate both of you really for what you're doing. Shushant, do you want to just tell us, tell us the title of the book? Let's start right there.
3: Well, the title of the book is called Thinking about prescribing and the secondary title is the psychology of psychopharmacology with diverse youth and families now thinking about prescribing is not a new concept actually our brother david Mintz, who is uh, probably the foremost uh current thinker in the concepts of psychodynamic psychopharmacology first penned a very important paper in 2005 with the same title um, because he spent his career at Austin Riggs working with patients who really are affected profoundly with se- the severest forms of mental health conditions, mental illness. Um, also in 2005, Andres and our brother Jeff Bostick gave me the invitation uh, to write on this topic. And um, the title of that paper was called Teamwork, uh, the Therapeutic Alliance in pediatric pharmacotherapy. And that title and that concept of teamwork was from one of our mentors, Carl Feinstein. The other mentor, Kyle Pruitt, um, makes up the second of the pair um, to whom we dedicated this book, Thinking About Prescribing. Because um, Carl and Kyle really had profound influences on us as we were thinking about our own identities and how we Um, how we wanted to be with patients and families and who we were and who we are when we um, work with patients and families. So uh, the book really is about, as as the title indicates, um, it invites us to um, think more uh, carefully and to espouse the idea that our remedies are only as good as the way in which we dispense them and that is how we begin and that is the pro the process by which we convened um close to 50 authors was again not something i could have done on my own but um there were a lot of people around the country and around the world who have been thinking about this people who've been writing about it presenting about it publishing even doing science about it but there really was nothing of its kind in one volume. And so my chair of psychiatry, Dr. Laura Roberts, really um, was a strong influencer from the very beginning and um, asked me to to um, think about this and who I'd want as a co-editor. And there was only one guy for this to, um, to do this with me. And so here we are. It just came out. Um, It's selling really well. We're doing talks around the country. And um, finally, we have gotten to the Dr. Joe show.
1: (laughs) I am thrilled and honored. And I actually, I I may bring it down, but I I have on my wall a plaque uh, with the cover of the book that Mm -hmm. that, uh, was sent to me as a gift a while ago. And it's delightful. Um, there are certainly many influencers in your book, I know that, and we're going to cover some of them, I hope. So so why, why is this such a timely topic? I mean, people have been prescribing, you know, remedies, things like that, for long before we actually had a medicine. It was, it was prescribing. Why now?
2: Well, I think that historically, most of those many, many, many remedies did nothing. We did not have uh, medications that worked this century in particular, this past century has seen a dramatic change in that. We have uh, just to name a couple, penicillin, cortisone. Uh, We could go down the list. These are game-changing life-saving medications. So as pharmacology gets more refined as medications get better, Uh, we believe we delude ourselves into thinking that that's all it takes. It just takes the right molecule to do the trick, particularly when it comes to psychiatric conditions that are a little bit less palpable, less measurable, and so forth. So we cut ourselves short. It's all the medication. This book is really a reminder to all of us on the prescribing side to remember that we are half, if not more of that prescription and on the receiving end. And some of us are in both ends, right? I, uh, I, get medications prescribed by my physician and by my psychiatrist to know that how they are given the nature of the relationship is uh, integral and critical to it, how helpful or not they are. So I think that that's probably the urgency as our drugs get better. We, uh, write ourselves off the equation, and we should. And others write
3: us off the equation as well. So unfortunately, in modern practice, psychiatrists are all too often relegated to be pushing pills in the corner office, right? It's like we have meager contact with the clients or the patients with whom we are charged great responsibility. We're giving we're given fifteen, twenty minutes, thirty minutes tops sometimes for a new encounter. And that's just not what Dr. Joe, Dr. Martin, or I went to school to become doctors of the psyche. Um that was what that was about. Um and so we are trying to put forth the idea that um we as psychiatrists as, again, Leston Havens, a mentor of ours, Doctors of the Psyche, um, we want to encourage uh, ourselves to, if, if our primary role is in overseeing the biological treatment, we ought to really take back the term pharmacotherapist and to view the prescribing of a psychiatric medication to young patients, not simply as part of a clinical visit, but rather as the beginning of an ongoing relationship with the young person and their parents or their legal guardians. And so the prescription is not the end of the interview. It's the invitation for things to come. It's a conditional you know, promise of hope, if you will. And the biggest part of it is Andres penned so poetically in the introduction is really about prescribing yourself in the encounter because, um, you know, the therapeutic alliance we know from a lot of science over the last 25 years is at the core of any successful treatment, uh, whether it's brief psychotherapy, whether it's psychodynamic psychotherapy, which often, you know, may not have a time-limited brain to it, um, or if we are in what are known as um visits that focus on the medication, which unfortunately go by the name, med visits or med checks. In the book, we propose that those terms don't apply really to any visit in psychiatry, be it with children, young adults or older adults. But certainly in children, we wanna think about the less time we are given, the more important the relationship. So we propose the term brief pharmacotherapy visit or BPV. That can be 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever it might be. But even because language matters so much, even changing the terminology and losing the word med check, med visit can be very powerful. And including the terms brief pharmacotherapy visit still allows us to be who we are and also fulfill the role on a team that we might be assigned to. You
1: know, it, resonates so much with me on on so many levels. I don't I don't know if I ever told you this when, when I was a resident doing my adult psychiatry residency at Institute of Living before I met Andreas, I actually wrote a small piece that went to one of these throwaway psychiatry newspapers that we get. It was called the Queen Bee Syndrome. And at that point we were just and in psychiatry, we were just really beginning to be pushed into that role as the person prescribing, that we would have the least amount of contact. And for me, it was an image of being a queen bee in this hive of all these other therapists, and they would just pull these pills out of us, and we would have the least contact with the patient. So this is part of why I really wanted you guys here, because this is really part of what I have been doing as well. And my dad was a pediatrician. Uh, and I would sit with him years ago when he was practicing and he would say to me, you are the medicine.
2: Mm-hmm. And Oops, that's I hard. I plagiarized your dad and I didn't even know him. A pleasant it's, it's, memory.
1: It's, it's, it's,
3: Where did your dad practice, Dr. Joe?
1: So he was chief of pediatrics at, at Mount Orban hospital mm. uh, here in, in uh, Massachusetts. In yeah. And I, 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 I think, Andreas, do you think that, that, this is part of what we were actually taught because we had some incredible teachers, even though we were taught by, by some of the world's greatest pediatric psychopharmacologists, but did you get the sense that they were just saying to us, just prescribe?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and how did you, how did you become who you are? Cause that's not what you do. You do so much. Well,
2: more. well, partly I was in a, um, beehive with uh, some other bees you included, uh, where I learned and I found myself in my way, and I think that we all did. I think that we take that maybe a little bit for granted that the people we train with are probably much more important than the people who train us. Mm. That certainly was the case. I mean, you know, it's a little bit of a love, you know, love note here, but I learned more from you than from any of our revered teachers. I love that. But it's true, right? I mean, it's um yes. pure, and, and pure. I think it, it I I know that in some way there's a Dr. Joe I am connection in there. You know, you influence everyone, right? Right. And 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 many times you just don't know it. But you're absolutely right when we when we were taught by, you know, the world's best on pharmacology, yeah, uh, this was not an issue. Uh, funny, quick story. And I have edited uh, two editions of a big book on psychopharmacology, you know, the kind of book that is really good as a doorstop. <laughs> and when we did the second edition and I was talking with my editors, what should we add or take out from the first edition? Uh, my co-editor said, do we really need that chapter on the psychology of psychopharmacology? Now, fortunately, I was a lead editor, so I said, next?
3: But, but it that, co- was, um, that was Chapter 30 in the second edition. Uh-huh. And that chapter allowed me to get promoted to full professor at Stanford because Canadian Journal of Psychiatry picked that up. And in their review, they said, the jewel of the second edition is the chapter entitled... And then they gave us, which, which
2: by the way, you know, we're 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 mixing these metaphors, but I think we're going somewhere here. Yeah. There's this story about these uh, women, men, I don't know, who go down to the river and they're in the river washing their clothes are very poor. And they go every day at the same time because they know that there's going to be this uh, bundle of food and bread and deliciousness that they can go and feed their family with. So they do it every day. So eventually the, the curious person says, well, let's go up river and find out you know, wh- where's this coming from. So they go up river, they come to this big palace where exactly at noon, they throw all the garbage, right? It's like, this is the bad bread and this is the bad salami. And this... So someone's badness is another person's goodness. And I think that, uh, isn't that something that this chapter that um, let's take it out to me is the heart of it. And by the way, I also think in going back to the book and what we're talking about, 10 years from now, I'm not talking a hundred years from now, ten years from now, all the medications we use today are going to be gone. They're going to be decrepit, or they're going to be the same ones. It's, either way it's going to be boring. Um, but this concept of you are the medicine, prescribe yourself, influence the other, that ain't going nowhere. That's forever. Yeah.
1: And it is so true. This this is part of what I'm trying to teach all of the nurse practitioners and the medical student folks that it's you. It really is you. But how can you spread
0: yourself across so many people as you? Like there's a time component here that is it sustainable for these doctors to be one-on-one with people on a regular basis? The numbers the supply and demand is way out of balance, right?
3: It's I mean, the supply and around. demand will always be out of balance, but God bless you, Dr. Joe, for training nurse practitioners and other yes. um, primary care clinicians, because that's really where it's at. I mean, we have we have the See. good fortune of, um, you know, many others who have trained with us, come before us, people we've mentored. There's a chapter in the book by Dr. Katie Ort and Amy Hennigan, on the pharmacotherapeutic role of the pediatrician, advanced practice clinician, and other primary care providers. When I was doing my first grand rounds on this book, I was in the Milton Sen conference room at Yale. Milton Sen, actually in 1948, penned this paper that made the top 50 articles in the Journal of the Ambulatory Pediatric Association of the You know, since 1908, the top 50 papers, they wrote it in 1998. His paper was called The Psychotherapeutic Role of the Pediatrician. And it was, Dr. Joe, as your father instructed you, be with the patient and be part of the medicine, right? So um, that's one piece of it. In that chapter, they cite one of our other mentors, Gene Berezin from Mass General, who says, in the limited time you have... You need to infuse timelessness within a time limit. The patient and family that's with you needs to know that for that 10, 15, 20 minutes in the pediatrician's office, that doctor has you and you only in their room, and they are totally focused on you. And nowadays, even if they're tapping on the computer, there are ways people can do that. Um, And the legacy of this has to be our training program uh, legacy, which is for pediatrician, for pediatric residents, for psychiatry residents, for child and adolescent psychiatry fellows, DBP's fellows, nurse practitioners. So we have a chapter called Teaching and Mentoring the Next Generation of Pediatric Psychopharmacotherapists, those who are doing the combined treatment and those who are primarily doing pharmacotherapy, which may be of many different disciplines that Dorothy Stubbe, Ishita Zalpuri, Mandeep Kapoor, and Don Hilty wrote, because they spend all of their time with trainees. And so a big part of this is, how do we model what we are talking about here, but then how do we encourage the next generation to say again, the less time they give you, the more important your platform and the more influential that time you have with them.
1: It's so true.
2: Uh, I do want to pick up on something. And and that is the word stigma. And and I want to take it here in two different directions. And one I thought all, uh, about a lot and the other, I just had the idea. The, the idea that I just had is that uh, Shashank was just talking about uh, this book being primarily organized around children, families, uh, child psychiatry, which is what we share professionally. And that's true. But I also think that the book is relevant to not just children. I think it's relevant to everyone. And that part of the stigma is uh, the stigma of psychiatry, of mental health as a separate field. Uh, Mark, you were asking before, what do we do with the crisis of uh, not enough people around? And we talked about some very good ones. We talked about nurse practitioners, about training the next generation, et cetera. I would add to that list that um, if you are whatever provider, medical provider, physician, you don't need to have the cooties about dealing with common things like depression and anxiety that respond by and large beautifully to medication. So there still is this um, what I call psycho cooties. Uh, If it is psychiatric, if it's between the ears, I shouldn't touch it. So that's one kind of stigma that um, I think we're trying to uh, buck up against. The other one, the one that I've uh, thought a a lot about, and we write about some in the book, is how to humanize ourselves with our patients. If you do the numbers game, If uh, for a second we believe, and it's, I think, very believable that one out of five people have a serious impairing mental health condition, that means if you do the math that how many physicians, let's just stick to physicians for now, how many physicians have a serious and impairing mental health condition? Uh, Let me do the math. Uh, Oh, one in five. Hmm. So if that is the case, why is it that we as a field continue to be so caught up in being perfect? Why not say, you know, I have been depressed, I have had anxiety? Doesn't mean that we need to say it with all patients, doesn't mean that we need to be uh, narcissistic uh, about it or showy about it. But it's that kind of instrument that can be very, very useful. And that this might sound a little bit like anathema because it's very undoctorly. Mm-hmm. So there are many different types of stigma that we could. Uh, fight against
0: what do you mean undoctorly because i think you're scratching at something really deep that you almost talked about when you guys Mm -hmm. were sharing education together yeah
2: no absolutely well when when we doctors go to medical school we're instructed to be perfect right we're instructed to know everything to not make mistakes and certainly not to be sick because if we're sick it means how could you trust me as your doctor if i'm sick now, if you add the word psychiatric to all of that, it just turbocharges the whole equation. What do you mean a doctor with a psychiatric anything?
0: Um, and They're supposed to be perfect.
2: They are. They are. And, and this, um, what my colleague Julie Chilton and I have written about this quest for maladaptive perfectionism is making the house of medicine sick. And and I mean it in a very literal way. Physicians kill themselves wow heal ourselves more than professions this is a big issue right it's
1: a big issue you know there's that phrase physician heal thyself I think it's been completely misinterpreted as if to say you have to be perfect but what I think it's really meant to say is physician heal yourself you you have the same things that anybody else does seek the help model that for other people and Uh, it's so overdue but but this this is part of what we're up against.
0: And one of and, the things we talked about a lot during COVID, Dr. Joe, was you can't help unless you help yourself first, right? The mask comes down at the airplane, put it on, then go help your neighbor.
1: Right, But we've had these guests who, who talk about self-help, who say how difficult that is and how many people feel guilty yeah. about putting self-help first, as if somehow you're not valuable enough. To yeah,
3: you know, some of the science that's come out of um, Mayo Clinic, um, Stanford University, we have um, a chief well-being officer, we have um, a couple of people doing work in this area, Mickey Trockel, he's done work on the concept of self valuation the idea that especially as physicians, as psychologists, people working in the medical center, we t- tend to really focus on others, we take care of others, that is our top priority to the expense of ourselves. And if we make mistakes rather than being in a culture that can celebrate the growth mindset, um, in some places that happens, but in others, not so much. Um, and one of the studies he did, he actually published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2019, looking at the concept of self-valuation in healthcare workers, that those who had the ability to you know, grow from their mistakes, but also were in an environment where that was encouraged. If you made mistakes, you had a mentor, you could go to them. It's not a penalty, it's an opportunity for growth and really sharing. It's different from our the bad old days of the M&M, you know, the morbidity and mortality where you come up for some sort of scrutiny and a peer review, but rather it's very collegial and it allows us to grow. It allows feedback to be the thing that allows us to grow and, and not be experienced as punitive. So, you know, more self valuation, lower risk for fatigue and burnout, yeah. higher self valuation, lower risk, lower self valuation, higher risk. So, I mean, that, that's sort of stating the obvious, but where it applies, I think, is especially in the places I like to hang out, which is in schools. I, I like to study school mental health and think about the factors that promote the idea that mental health is part of overall health. Our students have to be healthy enough to learn, and our teachers and staff have to be healthy and versatile enough and feel supported enough to reach and teach each of our students, each of their students in their classroom. So, this idea for teachers to not only put the mask on themselves so that they can reach and teach their students, it can be a means to an end, but it's also celebrating who they are as people as important. Important people in society who should be caring for themselves. So some of what we do in schools is to just authentically validate the teacher's presence, not only as a trusted adult and what they do for our, our patients, you know, but also just for themselves. So it's both and, and and that sort of celebrates this idea of the interdisciplinary approach, especially in the work with children and um even with young adults, because it's very hard to get the whole picture when we're seeing our patients once a week or once a month. We do need to tap into other sources to really get the full picture.
1: Yeah. And and yet, it's interesting. I think we all develop our own styles um, in in this field. And, and that's certainly one of the things that I encourage my students is be yourself. You know, be yourself. Develop your style. But one of the things that I'll do is is i'll I'll say to a patient, a kid, you know, um, I first introduce myself, and I'll say, "Look, you don't know me from nothing. I'm Dr. Schwamp. you can ask anyone to lie to you. I'm never going to S you. Um, I may say things you don't want to hear, I'm going to say them anyway, and I just expect the same from you. Be honest with me, I'll do the best I can to help you if you need help, but you are the most important person in this." Because you're the only one who can tell me what it's like to be you. And if the parents are in the room, I turn to the parents. I'll say, don't let anybody ever tell you that you are not the expert in your kid. You are the expert. People like me, we're just the professionals. And I'll turn to the kid. But you are the most important person in this. So I think what we're we're talking about is that is letting the person know, I am not up here on some pedestal. Doctors were like this for a long time. My dad, I think, really enjoyed that part. You know, he really did. There was the joke. Remember the joke, you know, this guy dies, goes up to heaven, he's waiting in line for, you know, weeks and finally about to get to the front of the line, and this doctor just walks right by, just cuts through the line, goes right into heaven. The guy gets to the top line and he says, What's going on here, sense of St. Peter? That 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 doctor just like cut right in front of me. And St. Peter says, no, 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 that's God. He just thinks he's a doctor. And and while we were off air, Shank, you were talking about the cultural component. Can you just repeat that for our listeners? I was just proposing the
3: idea that what we teach in our child psychiatry fellowship at Stanford is that every interaction is cross-cultural. You know, you may have the same ethnocultural background of your patient or the family, but your story is your story. And part of our job as doctors is to convey this idea that your story matters to me, your individual story. Now, I might know something about your ethnocultural background and your interests that might allow me to attune my message or to attend to your parents in a certain way or to your grandparents or like everyone who came to the visit because it's a really big deal and they're coming to see the the Yale doctor or the Stanford doctor or whomever, the community doctor. You, you As a doctor, you have this platform. So you have to carry that with some respect because the patients are expecting that. And then for the teenager in particular, I think you have to keep it real. So culturally it's not about being inauthentic, but be curious, you know, if they're wearing a t-shirt of what looks like a band or a video game or a sports team, like ask them about it, you know, pay attention. Um, This is something that Carl Feinstein, one of the two people we devote the book to really taught me pay attention because teens in particular know when you are either watching the clock, talking about them instead of with them in the room while their parents are in the room. Uh, But really when you're holding space and you have a diverse group in front of you, the interaction is always cross-cultural. In addition, there's a third culture, which is the culture of the clinic. How long did it take you to get this appointment? Could you find parking easily? Does your insurance pay for this or are your parents paying out of pocket? Do you feel like a burden because they're telling you how much this is costing? Or do you feel like you have some responsibility here because you're the reason we're going to the clinic? So again, it gets back to the premise of the book which is how you are with your patients is just as important, actually more important we propose than actually what you prescribe, what you do with your patients, how you prescribe treatment, because in the end, the science tells us and our experience tells us that you are part of the prescription, the treatment, the intervention, and so you know the the take home message of the book is especially when you're not sure what to do, remain curious. Ask questions, you know. Talk less and listen more, um, and that's the reason we went to medical school, right? So it is a reminder to just be who we are as doctors, and um, in spite of what the HMO or the or, or the county is telling us, we have to practice. We still have the independence to prescribe ourselves in any interaction.
1: So how do you? Andreas, how, how do you present medication to somebody? Because so often a medicine implies that they're broken. How, how do you do it? Well,
2: uh, how many hours do we have to talk about that?
1: <laughs> We've got about five minutes, in, but I'll have you guys back. It's okay with you. I,
2: I think I think that there's a couple of quick points. One is what we call the thing, and and that depends a lot on the age. So medication might be a little off-putting. Uh, medicine might be better for a younger kid, um, you know. Pill, certainly not psychotropic. I mean, it, word choice is very, very important, right? Um, I was just thinking as I listened to Shashak that uh, what sets us apart as uh, from other mammals is that we're very, very social. That you know, there are other mammals that do that, but we're um, meaning-making, storytelling mammals, and that sets us really apart. So whatever the quote-unquote story of why we're going there is very important. There isn't a one formula, but there needs to be a story. It cannot be, I am the doctor, this is the pill, you take it. No, there needs to be some back and forth, because you're making meaning together. This is a sign of hopefulness, a sign of improvement, Uh, never of brokenness. Uh, Patients are never broken. Um, We're not good at stitching people up. We don't believe in that. Uh, We want to enhance their development. We want to optimize their development. We want to get them to be their best selves. Uh, So those are a couple of things, but again, we could have several hours talking about this.
1: But but I'm curious because what, what is the first thing that you say you you, you meet a person for the first time? So people have different introductions. Andreas, and then I'll ask you. How do you start? What do you say? Yeah. Personally, you personally.
2: When I'm talking to a child.
1: Yeah. Uh, about medication. No, no, no. You've just met them. They've come in. You don't know any. You don't know whether they need medicine or not. How do you actually just start the conversation?
2: Well, it, uh, it depends if uh, um, I go with a lot of questions. I go with a lot of questions, Uh, whether it is, do you know why you're here or, or gee, it must be hard feeling X, Y, or Z. Um, uh, You're, you were told that there was a question about medicine. I don't know. I, I go with a lot, a lot of questions. I'm much better as a questioner than as an answerer. And, and then that, that informs which way to go. We have in our preface a whole chart, a uh, complicated chart of the the styles of relationship uh, with medication. And it has two axes. One is how helpful do you think this thing is going to be from it's going to be super helpful to it's going to kill me.
0: Um,
2: and what what is your stance about it? Do you want to take this thing, yes or no? And then we start playing with those squares, um, uh, that matrix uh, of some prototypes, if you will, of how patients, families, people think about medication. Some come with incredible hopes. Some want nothing in the world to do with it. Uh, Some come because someone else uh, said they need it. So there are many, many such ways.
1: Shank, what about you? What's the first thing that, that you say?
2: Well, I... I spend a
3: lot of time front loading on the relationship before I say anything relating to questions about treatment. Um, but like Andres, I, I like to ask questions. Mine are more general in the beginning, and I and I don't really talk at all about, you know, even if they're like Andres and I work a lot on inpatient units where let's face it, they're not coming for a health maintenance visit mm-hmm. or a well child check. Um, so I I guess first thing is I really make it my business to get as much background as possible. So I I know a little bit about why they're here so that I can first get to know the person, like just, you know, introductions. And so I understand you're a, you know, you're a junior at San Mateo high school. What's it like there? Are you guys in football season right now? Did you have homecoming last week? Um, There are different ways of making small talk that, you know, are just ways of breaking the ice. Uh, But I, I like to look for an opening around something other than why are you here? Mm -hmm. You know, something that is problem focused, but really seeing them as a, as a human, first and foremost, who has some symptoms that are really causing some issues in their life. And so that platform I think allows me, you've got to be observant and you have to have clues. You have to use the Columbo approach, but you can only do that if you've done your homework. I mean, there are some domains where we know absolutely nothing about the patient. Yeah. In which case, again, I'd still want to try to get to know them a bit. I might do a little self-disclosure and talk about who I am and, you know, what I'm interested in. But that's just that is a means to an end. It's this is not about me, but this is just trying to, um, you know, break some barriers um, so that they might feel more comfortable at a time when they're feeling very vulnerable.
1: So, again, it's those domains, we, we only have a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to just really ask you to be thoughtful but quick on this. Because, from the I approach, the four domains, the home, the social, biological, and IC, because they interact, a small change in any domain can have a big effect. In fact, whenever we add a medicine, all we're doing is making a small change in the biological domain. That's all. No one's broke. With that in mind, I'm going to ask you first, what small change can you recommend to our listeners, uh, given the topic we're talking about?
3: I think everyone who heard this podcast today, tell one person about it. It's a small change, but tell them what you heard today. This is how we defeat stigma in mental health, one conversation at a time. And if it leads to you sharing something about you or your family, you will have made a small change that can have a big effect you just bearing witness to your own story and being able to open up about it can start with a conversation. Start by telling one person about this radio show or this podcast and see where it takes you. That's
1: great. Andreas, small, thank you for that. Small changes can kind have of big effects. What do you recommend?
2: Well, you're, you're right, Dr. Joe, that uh, a medicine can have a small change. But uh, I would add that... Um, Coming packaged in a relationship, which is all that we've been talking about today, that can have a pretty substantial change. Mm -hmm. And that just like you might need a pill, you might want to give a pill some time to work. You want to give a relationship time to work. And the investment is really worth it.
1: And that, I think, leads into the next truth of the I am. I'll ask you first, Andreas, and we'll end with you, Shashank, but you only have a minute. You control no one, you influence everyone. Professor Andreas Martin, what kind of influence do you want to be? You get to choose.
2: Well, um, this book was meant for professionals. So let me think at that level. And I would like our influence, the influence of this book to be in helping a new generation of mental health Providers uh, seeing children to reclaim to know their their who they are, not to reclaim to really embrace who they are and never to lose it.
1: Shashan, you control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose what kind of influence. My
2: influence is
3: very simple. I want us with this book to be able to influence not only the next generation and our peers, but everyone who is employing us or works with us as child and adolescent psychiatrists as pediatricians as nurse practitioners anyone who is prescribing medicine that um, they see us more than pill pushers they see our visits no longer ever again as med checks or med visits we don't check on meds we check on kids and families we are not visiting we are not visiting potions or pills. We are visiting with children and families. It's the greatest privilege. So let's get rid of these terms, med check and med visit, and let's instead introduce the term and use the term that describes what we do. If the time is brief, it's a brief pharmacotherapy visit. That is an influence that I wish on the world, among other influences from this book. And I thank you for the
0: platform. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private, exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Secure Title. Secure Title helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers and sellers with all of their title, settlement and escrow needs. Securititle, S-E-C-U-R-I-T-I-T-L-E.com where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only the podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business the views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent please seek legal financial or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.